I have this uh, reoccurring nightmare. What a, what a light way to start us off today. But it's actually based on something that happened when I was a child. Now, I am one of five kids. I'm smack bang in the middle. But my older siblings are quite a bit older than me. They were teenagers when I was born. And so my older sibling, uh, Mary, I'm very close to her, but she's kind of like a second mum to me. So every year when the Royal Melbourne show would come around, uh, she would take me and my mum was like, yes, a day in the school holidays without my seven-year-old. So we would catch the train to the showgrounds and we would have a day of rides and entertainment and show bags and way too much sugar. And one year, I would have been, I think, about seven or eight. I was in, like, prep or grade one. We were at the show and we entered that really busy section with all of the rides. And one second, Mary was right next to me and then the next, she just wasn't. And I was all alone, surrounded by a crowd of strangers and I had no plan of how I would find Mary again. Being quite short at the time... All I could see were just legs, just a sea of legs, and it seemed like everyone was wearing blue jeans, just like my sister. I felt panicked, I felt alone, and there was this deep pit in my stomach. It was the longest 30 minutes of my life, though I've retold this story to them and they said it was probably about 90 seconds. (laughs) Mary then grabbed my hand and all was right again in the world. I felt safe and okay. But to this day, 20 years later, sometimes I still have that nightmare. And as I recounted this for this sermon, I thought I should bring that up with my therapist actually. But anyway, I still have it. And that feeling of being alone and abandoned and scared is a dreadful thing. Now, I wonder if you've ever experienced it. As adults, we aren't immune to feeling abandoned. Actually, the feeling is just gets worse with age. Often it comes if a relationship ends. Uh, We wrestle with deep feelings of this abandonment. If someone in our lives dies, uh, there's that deep feeling of separation, especially if it was a parental figure. Sometimes it's not people. It's actually causes or organisations or even churches that let us down and lead us to feeling hurt, forgotten and abandoned. And in many ways, we can sometimes feel that way towards God at times. Like we're alone, we can feel as if God isn't hearing or answering us. And that is a deep, deep wound, a deep abandonment. And I don't think it just hurts because it feels bad. Many things in this world feel bad and yucky. But they don't cut as deep as that feeling of being alone, of abandonment. We see it throughout scripture, especially in the concept of shalom, and I've spoken about this many times before, that we were created to be together in fellowship with one another, with God and all creation, this idea of everything in perfect, harmonious, right relationship. So anything that creates a chasm in that, a separation in that fellowship, it cracks it apart that leads to abandonment and it rips at our very created being and our very soul. And that brings us today to our reading from Matthew 27, verse 46. It's also found in Mark's gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion in chapter 15. And it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the word that I want us to focus in on here, and David, as he was putting this this series together, really wanted us to focus in on today. Um, In the original text, it's ikatolepo. It's a Greek word meaning forsaken, but it can also be translated as left behind, deserted, or, as we were just talking about, abandoned. And I think that this raises a really uncomfortable question for us, which is, well, did God, did the Father abandon Jesus on the cross, like this verse seems to say? Now, after spending a fair bit of time studying the scriptures and turning to trusted scholars and theologians, I don't believe that Jesus was abandoned by the Father or forsaken on the cross in the sense that the Father's presence or God's presence left Jesus alone entirely. And I'm briefly going to explain why Um, myself and other scholars and pastors think that, as this sermon allows, you know, we're we're not here for four hours today. But I also want to name that there are other scholars and other pastors and lay people that hold a different understanding of this. So if that's you or if you're undecided, that's also okay. What I want to encourage everyone to do is never just take the word of the person standing here behind the pulpit We believe that preaching is an inspired task by the Holy Spirit, but we also know that everyone here is a mere human vessel. We're all just kind of flesh here and um, for God's word. And we're really blessed that in this country we have high rates of literacy, we have the Bible, we're free to read it. So I encourage you, pick up the scripture yourself, wrestle with it and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. But today, here are the three reasons, sort of rooted in scripture, why I don't think that God's presence abandoned Jesus on the cross that day. Well, firstly, we believe that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since the very beginning, they have been in relationship and they are of one will. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoy life in and as one divine essence, not three gods, but three persons who mutually indwell in one another and exist in and as their mutual relations. So I think we should be very weary in creating a narrative that separates son from the father so deeply that it looks as though, for all intents and purpose, a different subject than the one true God. It seems that if the son is abandoned by his father on the cross but continues to exist, one can no longer hold that they share one divine being. Secondly, we know that they are of one will. This is linked sort of to what we just discussed, the idea of Trinity, that the Father did not need to separate from Christ to fulfil their plan. We know that Jesus was fully aware of what would happen to him and had accepted it. He knew his crucifixion was coming. It didn't come as a shock. It wasn't the father making a decision without him. It was part of their, the triune God's plan for Jesus to be the scapegoat for our sinfulness on the cross. We see in Matthew 26 that Jesus at the Last Supper says, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then we see in Matthew 17 that when they came to Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be 
delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Jesus wasn't abandoned. He was one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit, always in each other's presence, knowing and understanding what would come for him and for them. And finally, and I think one of the most important indicators that God didn't abandon Jesus in the sense of withdrawing his presence, is the way that God interacts with Jesus at other points in the Gospels. We see God affirms Jesus' ministry and makes clear that his relationship between father and son is one of love. We see that in Mark. We also see that when Jesus usually speaks directly with God and prays, he does so in a really intimate sense by praying father or Abba, which kind of means, it means daddy, which is very intimate. We see that Jesus usually prays, when Jesus usually converses with the father, it's always that intimate way. And there is some examples up here. When we see the closeness between father and son, it seems counterintuitive to undermine this relationship then by asserting that God has left his son in the very darkest hour. And this brings us to the little verse from today that raises some big questions. Why did Jesus then say this? Why did Jesus indicate that he was forsaken or abandoned? Now, I want us to remember, elsewhere in the scriptures, how does Jesus refer to the Father or to God? As Abba. But in today's verse, it's something very different. Instead of intimately naming the Father, Jesus says, my God, my God. Well, nowhere else in the Gospels do we see this from Jesus. And this should catch our attention. It should make us go, hmm, this is out of character for Jesus. What's going on here? Furthermore, in our English Bibles, it says the Aramaic first before translating it to English. It says, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Shabaktani. That's odd. Why give us the Aramaic? Our translations don't do that everywhere else. It's because that this is a direct quote from Psalm 22. The Psalm for Jesus and for other Jews, they weren't just written down and passed along in Scripture as we do today, they were memorized. They were spoken out as prayers. They were on their native tongue, something that they knew. In his final moments, Christ, in his humanity, as he hung there in agony, taking his final breath, cried out, quoting the first line of this psalm, to draw the whole psalm to our attention. He was signposting to us and saying, go read Psalm 22. And why? Well, because Psalm 22 tells the whole redemptive story of Christ's death and resurrection. In his final words, Jesus is drawing um, that to the forefront of our minds. So, about this psalm. Psalm 22, the first verses say, as the suffering psalmist cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? 
My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. And then there is this very sudden shift for the psalmist to trust. It says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and they were saved. In you, they trusted and they were not put to shame. There's then some more lines from the psalmist about his suffering and then a return to God to say, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. This is a psalm of suffering and it is a psalm of trust. But the interesting thing about this psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross is that it mirrors the suffering of Jesus. Let me show you just a couple of examples of this. And I've made a table that I'll pop up on the church website if you want to investigate a bit more this week. So firstly, we have Jesus' hands and feet pierced while he is surrounded by criminals. And the Psalm 22 says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and feet. Then we have Jesus thirsting, and next week we're going to look at that in the sermon. And in Psalm 22 it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Then we remember from last week's sermon the gloating of Jesus' enemies. And Psalm 22 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And finally, we know that in the crucifixion, they cast lots for Jesus' garments. They strip him. And what does Psalm 22 say in verse 18? Well, they divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. But the psalm doesn't just leave it there. It's not just some great mirable prediction of Jesus' suffering. In Psalm 22, it gives a sense of the overall purpose and the implications of the cross, signalling the resurrection and the fulfilment of the gospel. It demonstrates that the cross is not the end and God's help is indeed present when it says in verse 19, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then in the final verses of the psalm, sound exactly like a proclamation of the gospel. They say the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. At the end of the earth, we will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow before him. 
for dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All of the riches of the earth feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. I think that this shows us, like the psalmist, that Jesus has not been abandoned by God in the sense of God's presence has left him altogether. Instead, these parallels suggest that the abandonment of Jesus refers to his helpless situation at the hands of his enemies. We know the suffering psalmist did indeed experience vindication by God from his enemies. God did not leave him to despair, but heard his cries and answered it. And I think that is what Jesus is signalling at here as he cries out this as his final words, that he might feel that the father's help at the hands of his enemies has abandoned him. But God's presence never could and never did leave Jesus. Remember how we started today with that silly story about me at the Melbourne show and we reflected on our own feelings of abandonment. Maybe sometimes we feel that way towards God. Maybe we speak those words of the psalmist. We might not cry out as dramatically, but in our minds we might say, God, where on earth are you in my life today? But in today's reading, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We are pointed towards the cross and to a suffering Jesus. And on the cross, we see the opposite of abandonment. In Jesus' suffering, we see reconciliation. Now, there is this beautiful story told about the English 19th century landscape painter, John Constantinople. Now, John loved painting these idyllic countrysides. He also loved his many children. And when I say many, they were like a lot of them, like 10, I think. His oldest son, also called John, kept a diary and wrote about one particular day that he would never forget. There was to be this very special exhibition of his father's works. And critics from far and wide came to their home in the Suffolk countryside to see the new paintings. The highlight was this really, really big piece. They had a big dramatic curtain to unveil it. Now, the great moment came. Everybody crowded around, excited. And John Senior walked up and he pulled back the curtain with a cord and the new painting was unveiled. But there was a groan and a shocked intake of breath came because there was this great tear across the canvas from the very top to the very bottom. Slowly, everyone departed and John Senior was left with his wife and his children staring at this torn work of art that he put so much work into, so much love into. Everyone was there except young John. Later that evening... Young John returned home, head hung low. He was frightened and looked very, very guilty. His father asked him, John, did you do this? 
And John replied timidly, yes. What happened next, though, was something young John would never, ever forget. His father looked at him and said these gracious words. Well, how shall we fix it, my dear? Our world is like a beautiful work of art. God gifted it to us. And yet we know that God's beautiful canvas has been torn from the very top to the very bottom. Our greed has plundered the land and damaged the environment. Our wars continue to maim and to kill. Our sin has broken and scarred our relationships with one another. It has broken up families and divided people of different cultures, races and beliefs. Our world is torn and it is divided violently at every level. This terrible process in the New Testament is the work of the Diablos, translated commonly for us as the devil. And this Greek word literally means the one who throws apart. The essential work of the Diablos is to divide, to break up that which was one. And that breaking, that messiness, can lead to feeling broken and hurt and abandoned by others and God. However, instead of being a God of anger who throws his hands in the air and leaves us with our messy, broken painting, who wants us to feel the depth of abandonment, we have a God that instead looks at us with mercy and says, how shall we mend it, my dear? God came as Jesus to the world to mend, to save us from tearing ourselves apart. If the work of the Diablos is to divide and separate, then the work of Jesus is to reconcile. When Jesus died on the cross with his arms outstretched, he forgave the sins of the world. He was mending a broken world. He was bringing God and humankind together. Theologically, it's known as this big kind of stuffy word, atonement. Let's break it down. That just means at one meant that we would be at one. Jesus came for this purpose, a simple yet profound purpose, reconciliation, the very opposite of abandonment. Rather than giving you my words, let's just read it straight from scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God promises us, God promises you that you will never be alone. The cross, at its very heart and very essence, is about reconciliation, the undoing of abandonment. Just like Jesus, who experienced people who abandoned him and betrayed him, we might be let down. But God will never let us down. On the cross, in his last words, Christ points us to a psalm that speaks of the promise of God, that speaks of God's presence even in your suffering. The good, the bad, all of life, you will never be alone. God is with you. Let's pray together. God, 
we come before you this morning and we just want to acknowledge that despite how we may feel sometimes, you are always there. You are chasing after us. You want to love us. You want to fold us into your story. You want us to be together and with you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the suffering that you bore for us. We ask this morning, God, that we would come to know you afresh, that we would come to feel your love and your mercy. Thank you for who you are and all you have done. Amen.